Ladies and gentlemen, they and them, put your hands together for Rydog's Invisible Spectacles. Yeah, baby! Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, you're all so kind. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, everybody stop cheering at once. That's that's a little weird. Welcome to The Invisible Show. My name is Rydog, or you can call me uh, Ryan Serrano. It doesn't really matter, but uh, I'm super glad to have everybody here in the live studio. Uh, if you want, please check us out at number one on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and uh, today we have a really exciting program for you. And uh, uh you know, for the copyright lawyers uh, that are a part of SNL's legal team, I hope that you understand that this is uh, completely satirical and it was in no way meant to rip off the opening for your amazing show. So please go easy on us legally. We're just a small group trying to provide an entertaining show. Am I right? I love you, Daddy Randall. You're my favorite. And I love you too, random audience member. Uh, somebody give him some free popcorn. He deserves it. Uh, anyways, everybody, we are doing some great stuff for you today. I'm going to be reviewing Ginny and Georgia. I have everything scripted out. Um, and then I'm just going to be giving a final farewell to WandaVision, finally, after so long. And finally, <laughs> I said finally twice, I know, uh, I'm going to be reviewing Zack Snyder's Justice League. So all three of those things are going to be in this episode. So let's get to it. All right, Ginny and Georgia. This is a show that I think a lot of male critics are sweeping under the rug right now. It could be because it's the type of show that's not in their palette, or perhaps they've reached a peak sensation with the release of the Snyder Cut, WandaVision, Falcon, and the Winter Soldier, and all the mainstream monster superhero hysteria that's happening right now. I mean, Netflix only has Umbrella Academy, and Disney is close to outnumbering them with their subscriber count. So, yeah, lots happening in the media. To put it simply, it's a show about a mother and daughter that takes inspiration from so many other movies and shows. Uh, there's an article from Vulture that recently described it as, and I'm taking this out of context, but here it is anyway, it's not just Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. It's also Dare Me, Euphoria, Weeds, Sneaky Pete, Mom, Desperate Housewives, and How to Get Away with Murder with a hit of We Need to Talk About Kevin and a Reverse Heart of Dixie Twist. Whatever that means, I have no idea. But let's continue. It's in the top 10 on Netflix as of right now. It's fun and binge-worthy, but would I recommend it? Well, let me explain. The show follows the two title characters as they move into a new town called Wellsbury with Ginny's cute but emotionally dysfunctional brother Max. Ginny's the daughter and George is the mom. I'm only going to say that once. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say their names a bunch of times, but let me repeat it again. Ginny's the daughter and Georgia is the mom. It's easy to get those two mixed up. Ginny goes to high school. Uh, she meets new friends and even gets a boyfriend within the first two weeks upon arriving. I'm not kidding. 
while Georgia, on the other hand, pushes to land a job at the mayor's office and is keeping secrets hidden to avoid resentment from her children and time in the slammer. Jail time. It, yeah, what a premise. Am I right? All right. So, you want to know my thoughts? Well, I'm going to get into some spoilers, so here it goes. I'm going to talk in depth. I'm going to bash one of the two title characters right now, so here we go. All right. So now, out of the two main characters in the title, I only really liked Georgia. I understand Ginny and the justification for some of her choices, but most of the time, it was so unbearable to watch her. (laughs) I think a lot of critics would disagree and say they liked Ginny and found Georgia to be a flat, one-dimensional character, but there are legitimate reasons for why I liked Georgia, aside from the fact that I found her to be very charming and extremely attractive uh, throughout the entire show. What do you want me to say? Okay, I'm a simp. You're a simp. It's human nature. Let's get over it. Anyway. Um, you, okay. <laughs> I'm going to get in, in depth and I do recommend watching the show. Uh, so if, in order for you to understand me. So like I said, the daughter makes terrible decisions. She yells at, she yells at and insults her mom for not telling her she has an aunt. Uh, maybe I don't fully understand the mother-daughter dynamic, but I wouldn't scream at my mother and call her trash after finding out she had a sister in my ad- in her adolescent years. Especially if I knew sh- that the mom came from a broken home. It was revealed after that she didn't exactly know about um, the mom having a, a, a troubled childhood, but she's a smart fucking kid. I don't think it's terribly difficult to figure out that her mom probably had a rough home life if she hardly ever mentions her family and had her had Ginny when she was 15. Ginny also knows that, that the mom had her at 15. Anyways, I'm getting off script. She never even apologized for doing so either. She doesn't. I can understand if someone is upset over their parents, pretending everything is fine and hiding stuff, but even if you don't know the exact reason as to why a single mother chose not to tell their kid about her sister, no reasonable person would start yelling and throwing insults at them. This this made me just not like her at all. This is one of the things that made me not like her at all. Let me get into this other reason. The mom dates this guy, right? Um who also happens to be the mayor of the town that they're living in. There is a moment where Ginny, the daughter, decides to be obnoxious when the family is having breakfast with them. Okay, so it's the three of them and the mayor. And Ginny lashes out just for no fucking reason because she's upset at the mom. She lashes lashes out by talking about how great her mom's ex-boyfriends were right in front of them. I was literally yelling at my fucking TV screen that entire time. I seriously could not handle how obnoxious Ginny was. But there's more depth to her character, and and some person from Vulture even points it out. So she says, the writer, she makes some terrible decisions, and she's sometimes cruel, you got that right, but she has the most compelling motives for her behavior, and she's at the center of the show's best stories about friendship, sex, class, and race. Yes, they touch on those themes very well. Um, 
but in what world is she a good character? <laughs> and in what world does she have compelling motives for her behavior? She has a point, but l let's continue. So there are times where Jenny was questioning the whitewashing of history and scenes with her AP English class in front of the students and the teacher. And I did like how the writers used her as a conduit to make us question certain things about ourselves and things about environments we were raised in. Like, as I was watching those scenes, I remember thinking, oh, shit, most of the history in our schools is actually whitewashed. Like, we don't, you know, all of the books in our curriculum are by authors like J.D. Salinger and the author of Great Gatsby. Like, both those those guys are both white. Like, there aren't any women, uh, people of color as authors in our cur curriculum that are featured in there. And it made me think about it. So there are moments where she has great dialogue, but she's still an awful person. Like, she talks about books and stories and things like Gone with the Wind with her boyfriend, but it's still, like, it does. it's not enough because she, you, you, like, everybody knows she's fucking awful. All right, so not only is she being ridiculous towards her mom throughout most of the show, she's also leading her boyfriend on while the audience, the audience is privy to the fact that she's in love with this, this other dude and she's, she's in a relationship with this other guy. It's like, what? Why don't you just break up with him? And, and it carries on for too long. But I could also understand how it's not easy to let someone down, especially if you're yearning for the kind of friends that you've never had before. Her character wants a stable environment, and a lot of the time we're seeing her react to something she's not used to, which is compelling. I'll, I'll give it, all right, all right, I'll give it, I'll give it to the writer. She's trying her hardest not to lose anyone so she won't be like her mother. She just wants to be in one environment she wants a home home is where your heart is baby uh but again the bad far outweighs the good i won't talk about the side characters too much but the way they get to jenny's all is lost moment uh if you don't know what i'm referring to an all is lost moment is is one of the story beats in a character arc in in a movie or a tv show so but the way they get to it is so fucking ridiculous. And, and, and I was yelling at my TV screen the entire time. And my mom kept asking what the fuck was up with me. But, but holy fucking cow, it was just, let me tell you all, it was belligerently stupid. It, it felt way too rushed and forced. There, this is a, a major spoiler, major spoiler. So feel free to skip to the next part. I, I might have a timestamp, I might not. But basically, there was a fallout because Max, who was supposedly Ginny's best friend, I know I'm talking about a, a, a completely different character right now that I didn't mention before, but Max is, is Ginny's best friend throughout the show. Max, right? She lashes out at Ginny after finding out that Ginny slept with her brother Marcus. Marcus is Max's brother. And that's all she was mad about. That's it. And she wasn't just mad about it. Try infuriated. <sighs> These shows, man. Their one goal is to piss me off. Anyways, uh, the girls start arguing. Like, in the hallway, there's a whole event going on at school, right? And the girls just happen to meet each other outside of it. They're arguing in the hall about how Jenny kept this one big secret from Maxine. And Maxine's all pissed off. And while she's doing a performance... The rest of the girls are on Maxine's side for some reason because loyalty and groupthink, 
I guess. And while they're arguing, someone mentions Jenny sent sexy photos to Marcus, the brother, while she was seeing her boyfriend, while Jenny was seeing her boyfriend, Hunter. So Hunter comes out, arrives at that exact moment where they mention that, that Jenny had sent sexy photos, and, and he subsequently breaks up with Jenny. I'm not going to get into the rest of the scene or how that happens, but he just does. Uh, and he even punches Marcus in the face. Georgia is completely fine at this point in the story since she faced her all is lost moment earlier when the public found out she keeps guns in her house and when the investigator figures out she might have killed her last husband. There's a lot going on in the show. And I don't know if I can recommend it, recommend watching it because it leaves a lot unresolved and there's no guarantee, absolutely no guarantee of the show getting greenlit for season two after some controversial scenes and its controversy with Taylor Swift. Who knows, but I spent a whole 10 hours on it, and I'm not letting this live in my head rent-free. Anyways, the writers must have thought, you know, let's turn Max, her best friend, into a possessive, unlikable, entitled narcissist. So that way, uh, Jenny finishes her arc of realizing she doesn't belong anywhere. just felt too forced too rushed it's like being mad about having sex with marcus is just not a valid reason and and there was no indication that her character would be infuriated or offset by something like that uh her arc is fine it leaves room for more it leaves room for more character development and I get that they were using this moment for Ginny to learn and accept the only permanence is impermanence, right? But I personally think the writers thought it would be easier to break the girl's friendship and to have Ginny come back to town in season two after having ran away from her mom and working to resolve everything in her home and school life with her mom's problems getting in the way of that. So I think that's that's kind of how they're thinking of doing season two. I can already guess. Here, I'll show you a clip of the uh, writer talking about it. We have definitely, definitely thought about where the show will go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I'm hoping for the best, but I also know that if it does get greenlit, Taylor Swift and her keyboard warriors are going to be very displeased. Let's continue. I think people are getting upset over the oppression Olympic scene. I don't know why the creators decided they were going to leave on the worst possible note with Hunter, but this felt out of character for him and the whole argument was off. So here it is, and I'll explain the context after. Get it. You are closer to white than I'll ever be. Together, we make a whole white person. Your favorite food is cheeseburgers, and I know more Mandarin than you do. You're barely even Asian. Sorry, I'm not Chinese enough for you. But I've never seen you pound back jerk chicken. Last time I checked, Brody twerks better than you. And I like your poem. But your bars could use a little more work, homie. So really, how black are you then? Excuse me? What? Literally, what? Because if we're going to play that game, let's do it. Oppression Olympics. Let's go. Literally what? Because if we're going to play that game, let's go. Oppression Olympics. You and me. I wonder how I would do with the Oppression Olympics. 
They'd probably get like third place for something. At that moment, they were breaking up, but uh, man, it's just a gold mine of cringe. I think the writer's intention for this scene was to destroy any kind of sympathy the audience had for Hunter and validate Ginny's manipulation of his feelings. Because this is the worst possible thing he could have said to end things with his girlfriend. Like, it was disgustingly racist. <laughs> uh... To be truthful with you all, I don't know how I feel about Jenny and Georgia returning for season two. Not after watching the arguments. Not after being infuriated for like eight hours straight. Um, let's move on. I want to express my thoughts on Georgia because she was the only character that I actually liked. And maybe it was because I found her and the actress to be extremely charming and attractive but regardless i really admired her characterization i think the one thing the show hit on the nail is exploring america's idealistic role for women to preserve its social norms and the patriarchy now before i move on i'd like to express this is a trigger word for a lot of people namely conservatives, because what often happens is a misunderstanding between sides of an argument. You know, people people who use words like white privilege and patriarchy in their posts and reposts often don't meet the, meet the burden of proof. Some fail to prove things exist beyond a reasonable doubt, and it's good to look at these things from a, a legal perspective, because it's the best tool set for analyzing these issues. And look, I'm a left-leaning guy, but I won't resort to saying, <laughs> Check your privilege, or you're a racist. We don't have to explain anything to you. You have to educate yourself. Huh. But the resources that are often shared on social media are often boggled down, it's oversimplified, and it's not representing these issues uh, in a substantive manner. And when there's dialogue online, it's often emotionally charged. Um... But I, I think there's also people on both sides that are not willing to open themselves up and that are small. I don't know. Just expressing my opinion. There is... Uh, I'm going to explain how the, th how the show ties into the theme of patriarchy. So I, I, I wrote a little bit of a script. So let's get back to describing jo Georgia, her role in the show. And, uh, and now... Uh, I'm going to share an article from NPR that recently had this to say about the two main leads. So, here it is. Ginny is such a flesh-and-blood character, such a real kid. You might, you might meet at a school or a coffee shop while Georgia never stops feeling like an exaggerated character held at a slight ironic distance who's come from somewhere campier. I think Georgia... So for me personally, I think Georgia and her desires are much deeper and nuanced than this critic is actually giving credit for. And this person's experience is subjective. And since she's not basing the critique off of anything, just a feeling. Art is subjective, though. So, you know, I'll, I'll give her that. I'll give everyone some background, all of you some background, so that you'll know how I reached my final thoughts on Georgia's character. So to briefly summarize what she's gone through, it turns out she had Ginny at 15, killed two men for separately taking advantage of 
both her and her daughter's vulnerability. She's framed one of her previous husbands for a crime he did not commit. Uh, so just to name a few things that she's done. And uh, her past love life with Zion, Ginny's dad, is mentioned throughout the whole show. And Zion comes in by the seventh ep- episode while Georgia is dating this other guy who happens to be the mayor of the town. Let's call him Mayor Paul. There are three people that are actually in love with her, and one of them is just dismissed. (laughs) Like, there was no reason why he had to be in there. Uh, It's a fatal attraction, I guess, but his scenes didn't need as much attention as they got, in my opinion. I guess they're planning on using him for season two. Who knows? So, during the main timeline of the show... Georgia is raising two kids, uh, dating the mayor, and using the money from her dead husband's will to pay the mortgage of her new beautiful house in Willsbury. Both Zion and Mayor Paul end up meeting it like after episode seven in episode eight, more or less, I think. And she has to pick between them. This is where the show does a great job of showing what a person wants. Because there's a brief period of time where she's able to see the both of them in her life. And she's absolutely mortified when Zion leaves her. It's leading. It led me to believe that she is attracted to Paul, to Mayor Paul, and has feelings for him. But she definitely loves Zion more. Possibly. There's a scene where she tells Paul that Zion is staying in town, and she's hinting that she's going to choose him over Paul. But Paul, being the cheeky bastard that he is, says, Baby girl, look, that guy is in your past. He's not your future. I know what you want. You want power. Guess what he does? Guess what he does? The cheeky bastard. He pulls out a ring. And uh, and he says, I could see it in you, Georgia. And he, he really tries to beg her. Like, he wants this woman to be in his life. He says that she this, this type of woman only comes once in a lifetime. And he wants her to stand by his side. And he says, what do you want? And the scene ends with the shot of Georgia looking directly at the ring that he caught for her. What does she want? It's interesting to think about that, but this is the these are more of my thoughts. So here we go. I think Paul only understood a part of what Georgia wants. He pulled out the ring and proposed, offering her to be a secondary figure. Yes, I said that. A wife, or in this case, a spouse to a politician, is merely an extension of that person, whereas he was trying to sell a fantasy, an illusion, rather, that uh, that both of them would be sharing power. You know, I, I think he was just trying to seduce her into that mindset when in reality, it's it would just be him. The limelight would be focused on him and she would just be in his shadow. Um, his actions were evident of wanting to fill that mold of the proverbial American polit- politician fantasy lifestyle. She ends up accepting this role and resents Paul thereafter. Because in the episode that takes place after, she has this great opening monologue about men being entitled, taking up space, growing up in a world, seeing other men, men at the top, and just being all around obnoxious. 
She continues by adding women look back at them with vacant stares and bottled anger and how they must adapt and overcome a system that's designed against them. Uh, it's in episode 10. You should stick around to listen to the whole thing. I, I think I I covered the, the basic bullet points. But I think the show did a great job of showing how a person could weaponize their beauty to achieve what would be difficult for most people and how trauma in George's life led her to distrust others and give her children the future she never had by any means necessary. I loved how it showed circumstances can lead a person to live, survive by lying, cheating, and manipulating those around them. Uh, Georgia, as the matriarch of her family, gives her children and her fiancé a simulacrum of the truth, or half-truth. She's telling them the triumphant story of how she surmounted the obstacles in her life and became this badass mom, and hiding the much darker elements of her whole story that could lead her loved ones to misunderstand or possibly even despise her for it. And Ginny, as it turns out, ended up running away in one of the very last scenes. Oof. I don't like Ginny. I understand Georgia, and I, I, I stand Georgia, okay? I, I can't help myself. Final point. Guys, everyone, we're, we're, we're being gender inclusive here, okay? Watching shows that express political views and their narratives that contradict your own is healthy and arguably essential for growth. That's my take. It's healthy to wonder about the messages shows try to convey and to take it a, a step further by having a safe, respectful conversation about the themes with friends and family. Um, and to finish it all off, and to quote the writer herself, it is a show, it's a show, by women, about women, that's for everyone. So, you know, I, I know I said I was iffy about the recommendation, but it's a pretty good time. It might, infuri it, it might infuriate you for different reasons, but try the first episode to see if it's worth watching. Okay, okay, ote, ote, fleeky, go hard AF. Andrew Hales. Please get that reference. Right now I'm going to be reviewing Justice League. Justice League. You want to learn more about it, don't you? All right, all right, I'll tell you. I'll make it brief, though, because everybody is doing a review for this movie right now. Overall, I enjoyed the experience, and as a fair warning, I do have a biased comic book fan hard-on perspective with superheroes in general. Uh, plus, I didn't see the full theatrical release in its entirety, so there won't be that full juxtaposition that other critics are able to provide. I was definitely one of those guys that wasn't impressed with the other two DC films by Snyder that came before. In fact, I used to tease my friends uh, about how terrible DC was doing compared to Marvel movies. Uh, and they'd get pretty damn salty over it, believe it or not, by uh, picking at weaker MCU installments like Ant-Man and others like it. And Batman is probably my favorite fictional character of all time, but I choose to watch Ant-Man over BVS any day of the week. Zack Snyder's Justice League is, drum roll please, a good time. That's the thing though, time. 
people have complained about the runtime, and I I personally don't see it as a big deal, especially since our culture is so used to the binge model of streaming. It's safe to say uh, people are comfortable with watching four to five 50-minute episodes of a show at once, so I don't see the length as a, a huge thing. Some critics have pointed out that certain scenes didn't have to be in the movie, like with Barry Allen saving a woman from the fatality of the car crash she was in, but I think it was a great way of showing Barry's altruistic nature of saving people on a whim, or in a flash, rather. He's just so quick on his feet and, and thinks instantaneously, without a second thought. It was a way of foreshadowing the last scene where Barry reverses time to reverse the planet from being destroyed by the mother boxes. I'll talk more about that later as well. But the action scenes were badass. Like, there's this awesome moment where Steppenwolf, uh, the main villain, is shot with five different arrows with ropes attached, held by the Amazon warriors. Uh, Steppenwolf pulls on those ropes, is able to lift the Amazons above his head, swing them around a little bit, and slam them onto the ground. It was so fucking spectacular. You have to watch it. And I'm pretty sure that video has gone viral already, but let's go continue. Uh, someone even gets their head chopped off in the climax, and someone even says fuck. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but general audiences are you, aren't are not used to seeing that dark, edgy tone from these specific heroes, because um, they've been light and bubbly for generations. And, and I'm all for the grim and authentic take on these characters, as long as it's entertaining. You might have seen the video of me claiming Batman is not a killer. I still strongly stand by that opinion, and while I don't agree with Snyder's take on the character, I'm personally fine with it at this point. There's nothing abhorrent about it, and as a fan, I'd need to learn to accept that directors' creators will take this character in new directions for as long as I live, and beyond that. A YouTuber by the name of Brown Table suggests that the Snyder movies are much different from the MCU, and in certain ways, yes, but it's also fair to say there are certain elements inspired by the MCU. Uh, the movie, for example, does make it clear that Batman's motives for bringing everyone together are inspired by Superman and his actions at the end of BVS, Batman v Superman. But it's also fair to say he's a lot like Tony Stark in this movie and in this franchise and in these this movie series. He constantly has his cowl off uh, while around the others and is open about mixing his two identities. But my rule is, and I guess it's the rule by in which most writers go by when they're, you know, making dialogue for this character, is that it is an alter ego. Batman is an alter ego from Bruce Wayne, and vice versa. His, his nature, Batman's nature, is inherently darker, and it always must necessarily exclude the billionaire playboy philanthropist image and stark tony stark on the other hand is open about blending his two worlds together because his identity is not divided is it is a singular entity other people have point, already pointed this out but snyder probably read the dark knight returns saw the mcu movies and most likely created a hybrid of the two as a fan and i'd say at least he was passionate enthusiastic with this version uh, because there will be plenty more takes out there there will be and if this was if the character if the decisions with batman and the rest of the ensemble were done by a board of directors from warner brothers who have no background knowledge of comic books whatsoever 
then I'd get upset. But everyone is loving Zach right now, and there is no re- valid reason to be pissed. Uh, I'd want absolute sovereignty if I was in his shoes and with my future filmmaking career as well. I, I want that for myself. So we can't help but feel happy for him. Uh, the other character I found to be a bit iffy was Darkseid, uh, particularly the voice acting, with his voice acting. I guess Snyder wanted him to sound like the most menacing super being in his DC universe, but other versions have done a better job at making him compelling by presenting him in a way where he's cold, sadistic, and calculated, and always has his hands behind his back, and just certain gestures uh, that give off the appearance of, of him having something up his sleeve at all times. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, he, he kind of sounds like this, and he's hell-bent on destroying all life that gets in the way of his goals. Whereas, you know, <laughs> in other versions, he talks like a person, but a person that is hell-bent on getting what he wants and is good and is smart, and it's just, you know, it's a person that just sounds intelligible and that we can actually understand. I hope they get his character right in future installments. If they're going to make him absolutely evil, evil, then there should be no there should be a justified reason for how and why. And as far as we know, he isn't going to be like Thanos since, since Thanos, Thanos's motives were to execute a genocidal plan, but for the betterment of the universe after his own world had suffered from natural causes, whereas Darkseid yearns for the complete domination of all worlds in the multiverse, which is a mission that's, quite frankly, hardly even relatable. Is he doing it because he lost someone? So these are the questions that we need to ask, right? Does he feel entitled to all life simply because he's all-powerful? Is he emotionally attached to anyone in particular? Does he have vulnerabilities? He's an extremely difficult character to write if you want to make audiences care about him, kind of like Superman, which is why Man of Steel, Man of Steel uh, received mixed reviews. But I thought they did a great job with Steppenwolf for showing how he wanted to come home and to be accepted by his bosses. Uh, there are people that want to be accepted by those that bring nothing but toxicity into their livelihood. Okay, so, I mean, Steppenwolf could definitely resonate with those people. <laughs> uh, that's sad. I mean, I genuinely felt bad when Darkseid squashed a part of his head after Wonder Woman severed it from the body while the Justice League threw him in the mother box portal. It was bananas. Um, lots of great moments with the actions. Uh, the characterization overall is okay with, like, you know, each person. And uh, I, I think the cast has pretty good chemistry, so uh, it doesn't it doesn't fault on, on those qualities. So go check it out. Uh, and the final point that I want to make... Movies are at their best when a villain succeeds for a moment until the protagonist outsmarts them. They are at their greatest when the villain loses by the heroes outsmarting them and to something that was totally unaccounted for, which in this case was Barry Allen running back in time to undo the charged unification of the mother boxes. I bet that Barry didn't even fully know he had the power within himself to do that until the very moment when it called for his executive decision making and it's a perfect segue for two roads two um movie paths that the studio could take warner brothers could either do a follow-up to a second snyder justice league film or a flashpoint movie and i'm guessing audiences 
wouldn't mind if the DCEU split itself into two timelines. Post-Flashpoint films would be open to wider possibilities, along with Snyder concluding his run with DC uh, in an endgame level event. And why not have both? <laughs> that is my final point. Anyways, make popcorn for yourself and watch it on one of your self-care days. It'll be worth it. I promise you don't have to watch it ironically. It's a good time. Okay, we're finally down to the last segment of the show. Thank you all for sticking around this long. I will make sure to have timestamps in the description. So without further ado, here we go. I think uh, it's kind of funny uh, to sort of think that there is an unintentional parallel between the MCU and the real world. I mean, the MCU has the blip. People were gone for five years, and then in the real world, like people, everybody is just slowly climbing out of the pandemic uh, with the vaccinations and everything. So I don't know. I just think it's a little weird. Um, so my thoughts on one vision. You want to know them? Okay. Well, here they are. After a while, I just didn't want to talk about this one anymore, but I have to live up to my promise of giving the whole show a full review. Uh, especially after that last episode. In the long run, all the fan theories that were there temporarily probably won't matter. People will just stream it, enjoy the show for what it is, and, and be done with it. You know, while fans that invested their time in it are probably dwelling over the fact that they got duped or perhaps uh, not considering how there are so many other things to stream right now. I was personally one of the guys that got duped by this. I spent way too much time speculating speculating uh, the outcome of the finale, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that more as we go along. But disappointed, I feel I should be sounding like Yoda. Let's continue. Uh, for the most part, it does a fine job at keeping you guessing, knowing what happens to uh, Wanda and Vision uh, before watching the show helps the viewing experience, in my opinion. I've seen some critics complain at how Marvel Studios didn't develop these character look characters well enough for audiences to care, but I don't believe that's entirely true. Uh, at least for me personally, Wanda and Vision's romance didn't receive the attention it needed for the general audience to fall in love with them as people, but um, I still like them, and I thought they were entertaining to watch. I mean, they were probably not the most entertaining element of Infinity War. I mean, that's where their boyfriend and girlfriend relationship was established, but uh, hey, it's there, and I don't mind it. The MCU thought of the next logical step for Wanda's character, because right after Endgame, the writers probably thought, okay, we need to make this person who was previously a fat, <laughs> flat character into a total sensation since there wasn't much development for her in the other movies, and we need to sell the idea of a Marvel Studios TV show because they are essential for the development and success of Disney+. And, and that's a huge burden to take on, and... In the show itself, they implemented ideas that speak to everyone, but not not so much ideas, but but sitcoms. Um, 
you know, everybody wants to live the fantasy lifestyle uh, that that sitcoms often present. So, and those ideas, the idea of of a, an American dream fantasy, resonate to those people in under, underdeveloped countries, similar to Wanda. And I, Wanda clearly wanted that for her and her family. And the last two episodes established that she does, but they could have done it in a way better fashion. Uh, Agatha, who is the show's villain, like walks us through uh, the motivations for Wanda's behavior step-by-step. Uh, step. And, and most shows have, have flashbacks, which is fine, but it, it felt cheap to have someone explain the significance of each moment in Wanda's history to us, which ultimately broke the rule of show, don't tell. Uh, other people don't mind it, and they didn't, but I, I felt like I was being spoon-fed and there could have been better ways to execute the flashback scenes. I guess they wanted more moments with Agatha as a fully realized villain, uh, but they just could have done a better job. Uh, on another note, almost all of the side characters will either get their own spinoff or be featured in an upcoming project, and I'm honestly kind of tired of it. I, after watching Zack Snyder's Justice League and the creative freedom that was there, I just look at comic book movies a little bit differently now. I just think there are too many restrictions, limitations on the MCU for having to make references, connect, and fit a tone that contradicts with spontaneous creativity. And their formula works, and I love other MCU movies, but that's just what it seems like now. The studio has to greenlight the type of direction for a film for better or worse. And it, uh, the WandaVision itself certainly has good character development and interesting concepts, but Perhaps part of the reason why people liked it so much was because of it was the first thing to make up for that superhero deficit. Uh, there were great moments, but every time I'm watching an MCU film, I, I can't help but think like about the next project and in the installment that I'm watching is hyping up. And so for WandaVision, I thought like, yes, it's a good story. It's fine. But its main goal is to prop up Multiverse of Madness. And especially if that one's going to be directed by Sam Raimi and it'll have like crazy, bizarre, super surreal horror elements that uh, Marvel Studios has never introduced before. So uh, I couldn't focus on the last scenes between Wanda and Vision. I was waiting for the post-credit scene the almost the entire time. Like, uh, I, yes, there's a good buildup. The climax is okay, but it's just a big, ugly CGI fight. And I... I I want to know what happens because everything leading to that moment was kind of disappointing for me. I think, uh, well, in the last fight, like I, I wanted there just to be a Mephisto. Like everybody wanted there to be some type of bigger, badder villain. And maybe for Agatha to be an antihero or, a, you know, a villain, but with relatable motives and not necessarily the main villain. And all the speculation with Screen Crush and Reddit, it just it took away my enjoyment. Theories can be confirmed for future installments, but I, I thought it was pointless to have spent all that time speculating when it led to nothing at all. Uh, I, as well as a good chunk of the MCU fandom, um, played ourselves so hard with this one, and I honestly can't feel any more duped. I can't feel any more stupid. I just... It was a waste of time. And... Yeah... Goodness gracious, right? Uh, I, I guess I was I just felt a little bit upset about the Ralph Boner joke. I know I made a huge, like, big deal about P 
people of the MCU casting the X-Men from Dark Phoenix and Apocalypse. And I don't know if they're going to do that. And and Evan Peters may be still up for the role as Quicksilver. But I honestly don't know. I mean, there's still that possibility, right? But it's improbable at this point. Maybe. Who knows? But uh, it certainly felt like a slap in the face. So... Speculation in Marvel is not my expertise either, since I haven't really read too many Marvel comics. But So I think from now on, everybody, I'm just going to stick to character analyses from uh, from this point forward. I'm not not going to do a character analysis for this one, because I I don't really have anything new to bring to the table. I just want to complain, and I'm probably never going to see the show again. So, good riddance. Uh, The movies just all resort to one big ugly CGI fight and I was thinking about this more and I think there's a point to be made here because if we look at Ant-Man and the Wasp and Captain Marvel like they all have big lame CGI fight scenes you know at at the at the climax and and those movies make good money but it's not doesn't really have that much entertainment value when you think about it uh, compared to some of the action and the blood and and all of the the terrific fight scenes that you see in Quentin Tarantino's movies, right? So I was I was looking at this actually, and you might argue that I'm I went on a little bit of a confirmation bias with this one, but I think there's still a point to be made here. So with the climax in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, if we look at certain scenes, if you look it up on YouTube, the top videos have two point roughly two point six million views each. So for the first first one that pops up, it's 2.6, and then the other one is 2.2. And if we look at Ant-Man, the Ant-Man climax scenes, and, and keep in mind, the, the MCU movies have probably, I, I don't, I haven't looked at the box numbers for these films, but, but the, I mean, that one has action, that one has gore, that one has like people, like literally characters slamming doors against somebody's skull, right? And in Ant-Man, you know, it's just a, a car chasing at, at the climax. It's uh, the first video that pops up has 390,000 views. Okay, that's for Ant-Man. And for Captain Marvel, uh, hers has 166,000 views. And then the other climax fight that's shown has 2.6. So there's honestly not a lot going for her. I mean, for those two movies. So... I don't know. That's just the point that I want to make. Um, when they're doing action, I think they just need to make it seem more real. Um, I, I want to see people getting hurt. I mean, that's just that's just my own personal preference, but I think it's what a lot of people like to see. They just want to see somebody, some something that will lead to a fatality, but in a cool way with a different spin. Just give us the same thing, but with the spin. I mean, that is just screenwriting 101. <laughs> yeah. Or who knows? I could be wrong on this one. I, I may be just a charlatan when it comes to the subject matter. I mean, I am I am a young dude. Or a novice to this, rather. Um, so overall, WandaVision is just harmless fun that will be viewed as a guessing game for the average viewer. I mean... They'll, they'll stream it all at once. They won't have to worry about all the fan theories or getting overwhelmed, being underwhelmed. 
You just watch it, enjoy it for what it is, and forget about it. I mean, good, good for them. And I think from now on, I'm probably just going to review the midpoint and the finale. I'm not going to do any speculation. So, yeah, that's it for WandaVision. <laughs> um, well, everybody, this has been a great episode. I've I've spent so much time on this one just making sure that I get everything right. And uh, RIS number 10, RIS number 9, part 2, they'll be out soon. I, I think RIS number 9, I, I, I haven't decided whether it's going to be out this Sunday or the following but I think I want to take some time away from the podcast because this has been stressing me out. And I have one week of spring break and maybe I can take advantage of that break, self-reflect. Who knows? But I know that I want to go big with RIS 10. So that I'm just inviting you into my thought processes right now while I'm recording. But it's been fun. And thank you so much for joining and I'll be sure to see you next time. Peace out. Love you. Bye-bye.